Welcome everyone to the Watchmen podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official unofficial podcast for Watchmen on HBO. My name is Matt and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Hello, everybody. The Watchmen podcast by Fantastic Geek revisits Chapter 5, Fearful Symmetry. Pete, we will dive on into Chapter 5 shortly. First, though, in the last couple days, uh, there was a Watchmen featurette dropped across those important social meds. That's your social media for the cool kids. And uh, offering us some, some sizzle, some glimpses, some anticipation into the show. The slow burn that we've been under for so, so many months has finally started to pick up in terms of intensity. And uh, this did everything to wet your whistle in terms of what to expect with the show. We've got showrunner Damon Lindelof. We've got Regina King, uh, foremost amongst the, uh, the cast there. And uh, talking about the unexpected surprises, Lindelof for the first time names are Rorschach uh, terrorist offshoot group, the Seventh Cavalry, which we could do a podcast just on that, Matt. Yeah, and I think there must have been somebody at HBO Marketing that was like, guys, do we really want to call these gun-toting folks? terrorists given the current climate it was like clearly somebody on the creative end said nope this is the the flavor that the show is taking and you know we're not gonna we're not gonna worry about breaking a few fragile ego eggs on the way to making uh a nine episode watchman omelet um so that was you know kind of having having more of the, the seventh cavalry in place i think was exciting as was pete Lindelof saying, and I guess this was breaking news, Lindelof saying he loves storytelling that give you twists out of nowhere. And he's been responsible for some of the bigger twists on TV in the last, I don't know, 15 years at this point. Um, but uh, the, the thing that I think, you know, and they, they make it clear, and Matt and I have already talked off mic here, oh, you know, you don't need to have read the graphic novel in order to uh, watch the TV show. Gee, with the nature of TV ratings, especially on a cable provider like HBO, of course they want to get as many people to watch it as possible. But within that, the common thread of this idea of masks and now police having to don masks after this massacre carried out by the seventh cavalry and then Ozymandias, which it says if you watch it with the sound off with the subtitle, it says when Iron speaks, Ozymandias uh, says masks make men cruel. Certainly an interesting line there. And of course, the requisite sizzle from Jeremy Irons, who you know, elsewhere is saying things like the scope of this show is phenomenal. And all that standard two-minute, you know, what, six-week-out kind of featurette stuff. Uh, but though the teaser, the featurette, though the footage here, some of it we've seen before, some of it brand new, I think that it certainly does what it's supposed to do. It stokes the interest in the show and in, in it kind of draws attention to the effort that has been put in behind the scenes. 
We're getting closer and closer. We're inside the 40-day marker. Uh, Matt and I are going to get a glimpse at the pilot on, uh, what is that? That's Friday, October 4th, is it? Sounds yeah. about right. Yeah, yeah that. At New York Comic Con. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to be talking this show with you. But for now, we'll talk about Chapter 5. Indeed, the summary of it from the wiki at watchmen.fandom.com is as follows. The opening image, an upside-down club sign. The chapter starts when a man walks through the rain past discarded newspapers reporting Russia's invasion of Afghanistan. The man walks into a house, which is soon to be revealed that of Moloch. Rorschach is there and questions him about the comedian's visit to Moloch a week before his murder. Rorschach makes suggestions that the list was related to the press allegations that Dr. Manhattan has given cancer to many of his close friends. Realizing that Moloch has no intentional part in this plan, Rorschach leaves. Meanwhile, another man, fearing the nuclear holocaust, has murdered his two children before taking his own life. We joined them during the police questioning his wife. The scene cuts again to the newspaper vendor, who discusses the end of the world with a delivery man. That delivery man puts forward the idea that in World War III, there will be no place to run to. The boy reading the pirate comic learns of the character's plan to make a raft of wood using the bodies of dead men who had gas in their stomachs for buoyancy. During this time, Dan and Lori are having dinner. Dan invites Lori to live with him after she has been asked to leave her home in the military. The pirate story continues, with the protagonist seeing the reflection of himself as a maniac, while the news vendor rants to anyone who will listen about the apathy of the world. Adrian Veidt walks to a meeting, discussing ideas of morbidity, death, and an afterlife with his secretary, who is merely concerned with physical appearance and money. She is shot at and hit, while Veidt fights the man, who eventually bites into a suicide capsule to prevent Veidt discovering who sent him or at least apparently so. At Moloch's, Rorschach discovers that he was murdered, and a bullhorn from outside commands Rorschach to come out and surrender. Clearly, it is a trap. Rorschach attempts to escape by jumping out of the window, but twists his ankle upon landing and is overwhelmed by the SWAT troops. He's then taken into custody. Closing quotation, Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? That's from The Tiger by William Blake. In the attached document, A Man on 15 Dead Men's Chests, a magazine article about tales of the Black Freighter. I know Matt is not as big on this chapter as I am. I'm going to begin right with the attached document and the way they've started now to seed this big practical joke that is going to get played on humanity at the end of the novel and they lay all the groundwork. If this wasn't inspired by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, I don't know what was. Um, and that they have the, uh, the writer of this work, um, Shay, disappear um, after the greatest run of tales of the black freighter and um, leave that detail out there. And then we will return later on and find Max Shea is now on the Island working with another artist, 
helping to create the giant squid and everything here. They think they're working on a movie. Uh, they've laid the groundwork here in this document that he's he's moved on to novels. He's moved on to uh, to movies and things like that. Um, and it enhances what is already in the chapter. Uh, some of the more shocking bits, not the big twist, but the more shocking bits of Tales of the Black Freighter on top of the issues we never see that come before and come after with all sorts of subplots. I think that there are nuggets of goodness in the attached document. I think a lot of it is kind of a mad fever dream of fluff to kind of give that contextual background to what a look back at comics would look like in the world of Watchmen. Uh, and, you know, of course it's pirates because we have real superheroes and things of that sort. The fact that it takes quite a bit of time to get to this nugget about Marooned, the two-part story, you know, it's a lot of setup for, you know, a decent amount of payoff. It did occur to me, though, in rereading this, you know, this is a fine example of that postmodern literature uh, aspect of trying to expand outside the genre. And it even made me think, Pete, you know, what was the name of the first Star Wars movie that you saw? Star Wars. Right. And then at a certain point, it becomes episode four at a time where maybe or maybe not, you know, I think 1980 is when it was attached with the re-release ahead of uh, Empire Strikes Back. I don't know that there were solid spelled out plans to do episodes one, two, and three. Point being, George Lucas was happy for a very long time period for you to have only the second half and it to be a fragment somewhat similar to what we're looking at here. So I know it's part of that postmodern zeitgeist. Again, for me, it's just kind of like we're, we're doing less and less to illuminate our understanding of the, the main story, the secondary story, the tertiary story. Is it an interesting thought experiment? It is, you know, Pete, maybe, maybe by the time we get to the whole owl uh, essay, maybe I'll be completely turned around, but I'm not turned around <laughs> yet on it. You love that owl essay. Obviously, the big event of the chapter is the unmasking of Rorschach and the aha moment that we've seen this man before. I can remember, you know, going through because I read it as comic issues that a friend had gotten um, with the original run. And I'm, you know, tearing back through older issues like I've seen this dude before. Oh, my God, he was at the funeral and he was here. He was he was in the first issue. He was there. Um, but I think it's the faux assassination attempt that carries the most weight in the total story of this chapter. And certainly oft told and rightly so is that at the exact center of the issue, we have this symmetrical, you know, two page six panel, if you count the middle two panels as one big panel, six panel presentation that is itself in symmetry. Um, I don't mean to downplay it. I just go through it rather quickly because I think everybody knows that, you know, symmetrical fact in this, uh, in this particular issue. And of course it's only in later understanding and in later weight where you realize that this is just a big show of theatrics and this is meant to obfuscate 
you know, all sorts of connections that Veidt has, and it's part of his master plan, etc. And that in and of itself is a good bit of, uh, you know, story pipe being laid. I don't know with fresh virgin eyes that don't know anything about this story, and there's no, you know, if you're reading it concurrently, or you're reading it as it comes out, or if there's no kind of, no way to be spoiled, no way to be doing analysis ahead of where you're reading, you know, if there's some sort of <laughs> discussion going on about, you know, who could the killer be, well, this list, there are, pardon me, this episode notches Veidt's name off the list of suspects. And, you know, on that note of symmetry comes as well the appearance of the pyramid deliveries truck and then later in the chapter, uh, after the pyramid deliveries truck has hit um, the uh, the newsstand, uh, lady comes around with the pink triangle um, live poster she wants hung up there, and it's upside down uh, again. This idea of reflections of looking at things from a different perspective. Well, and speaking of different perspectives, obviously nowadays in 2019, the, uh, the call perhaps not heated enough, but the call, uh, better heated than it has been in the past in terms of representation of all sorts of perspectives. It's one thing to say, Oh, here we have a character as a gay woman advocating for you know, safety, rape prevention, things of that sort. Then in that, uh, in that uh, attached document at the end, references made to ha- uh, the idea that some of the, um, some of the Black Freighter comics uh, had explored uh, you know, the, the one story, The Figurehead, which uh, dealt unflinchingly with male homosexuality. Two passing references that I've just cited here. But Pete, in 1986-1987, I dare say that's a pretty bold bit of representation. And, you know, not for the you know, not for caricature's sake, not for a laugh, kind of in a frank uh you know, present worldliness. Just another reason why this graphic novel was so far ahead of its time. Pete moving on at least for my purposes, circling to the Black Freighter portion of the story here. Again, kind of my standard complaint. You know, I understand its overall purpose. I understand the descent into madness. I understand the postmodern commentary on heroics, nay, the lack thereof. But, you know, it's an interesting enough story. Eh, you know, the the sharks make me much afeard. Other than that, I'm not getting a ton out of it. I am fascinated by the way they were able to flip the script. And because there are masked heroes, adventurers, Matthew, in their real world, that that's not written about in comic books. Instead, pirates became the subject of obsession. I'm super interested to see, you know, when we hit Watchmen on HBO has um, has EC uh, comics in their uh, ECU film universe just wrapped up, uh, you know, some pirate endgame film after 22 movies, you know, where Robert Downey Jr. played uh, Errol Flynn or something like that. I think they could, if they chose to, really have fun with that. Well, you know, I'm reminded of in a certain sense the granddaddy of them all at least on you know again in a certain sense 
the original X-Men film had a, uh, for promotional purposes, had a Senator Kelly website where you could actually uh, report, you could put in somebody else's email address to report them to Senator Kelly that, uh, that they were a mutant, and then they would get an email from Senator Kelly's office, blah, 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 and it would, you know, this somehow, Pete, this somehow was not a creepy thing in 1999 and 2000. This was a, a really neat, cheeky kind of, you know, in-universe thing. We say, oh, my goodness, check your email. You just got an email for Senator Kelly because you're a mutant. Um, all of that set up to say the world of the graphic novel is so deep that, you know, to what lengths will they go? I think on the one hand, you could say, oh man, they should do what they did with Lost, where there's the Oceanic Airlines website, and look, there's the book written by a guy who got sucked into the, you know, the, the propeller jet thing in the first moments of the show, and, you know, look, here's the game where this, not the other. Or do you just dial that back and say, nope, you get nine episodes, and that's it. There's not an interactive website. There's not a newspaper thing. There's not, you know, the history of the Gunga Diner. It's, you know, what direction do they go in this fully realized universe that is in the graphic novel? Do they dare expand past that so we have stuff to click around? Or do they keep the discussion on these nine episodes? I don't know. I have total expectations. It will be every bit as dense as the uh, graphic novel uh, in a way that a TV show like leftovers, like lost can incorporate these things that are going to send people to Google that are going to have people emailing us part of that conversation. Come Watchmen Wednesdays. Pete, I'm reminded of seeing a, a, a Google search graph that, uh, the, the day before, uh, the numbers were first introduced on lost. Nobody had ever searched for those numbers on Google. And then like that night, there was an uptick, and then the next day, the Thursday, it was like, you know, a bajillion of these searches for all sorts of connections and whatnot. So perhaps that's where the discussion can can go on. Perhaps it's not, you know, on the site HBO created. Pete, perhaps as you say, it's podcasts like ours. And it's people like you that make podcasts like ours possible by going to patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Indeed, Pete, all sorts of levels of donation there, all sorts of ways to help support the podcast with our variety of real world costs, got your bandwidth, your storage, etc. And Pete, we appreciate it so much. It makes us feel like we go from Dan Dreiberg in this chapter saying hell and damnation in his loneliness to uh, feeling a little bit more, a little bit more loved as Dan will be in future <laughs> chapters. Maybe not quite to that degree, Pete, but it fills our hearts and it turns our Dan Dryberg frowns upside down. Yes. While we do not have a Dan Dryberg, uh, you know, make you happy uh, level, uh, we want to make you happy nonetheless. So all it takes is a dollar uh, to get in that door behind the curtain there. Uh, maybe we'll bake you a cake like uh, Adrian Veidt's many servants on the TV show. Well, Pete, there's an icing on the cake, and that's a freebie that's talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? 
You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,634 followers, can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast, comment on FantasticGeek.com, check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a PH, all one word, like it today. Well, Pete, we will be back soon to talk more chapters of the graphic novel. Until then, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you, Pete, the final word. My face! Give it back! <laughs> <laughs>